Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. My favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare, a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground moving the needle in public health and medicine. There is no proof that the COVID-19 shots administered are safe or effective. There are reports from the fertility clinics all across the country that sperm count and motility is way down after the shot. My name is Jeff and I have two teenagers I'm trying to keep alive through this genocidal scam you all are running. You are all liars. Liar, liar, pants on fire. At Tuesday's Board of Supervisors meeting, which lasted almost six hours, 119 people angry with the county's COVID-19 response plan and threat of vaccine mandates ripped into supervisors. At times, it was downright intimidating. Your children and your children's children will be subjugated. They will be asked, how many vaccines have you had? It all now has the attention of San Diego's medical community. One doctor tweeting, listening to the Cultish, misinformed culture rants was exhausting and infuriating to us trying to get us out of this mess. You've no doubt heard the conspiracy theory that they are injecting some sort of electronic tracking device in liquid form through a needle into our arms. But this, at a committee hearing in the Ohio legislature, this was next level. Is it a combination of the protein, which now we're finding has a metal attached to it? I'm sure you've seen the pictures all over the Internet of people who've had these shots, and now they're magnetized. They can put a key on their forehead. It sticks. They can put spoons and forks all over them, and they can stick, because now we think that there's a metal piece to that. There has been people who've long suspected that there was some sort of an interface, yet to be defined, an interface between what's being injected in these shots and all of the 5G towers. Ivermectin that you see in a feed store is for animal, not for human consumption. It says it on the bottle. Matt Meredith can't keep Ivermectin in stock at his 731 farm store in Burleson. It's for deworming cattle, deworming horses. But people have started taking it to treat or prevent COVID-19, despite an FDA warning titled, Why You Should Not Use Ivermectin to Treat or Prevent COVID-19. I've never seen anything like this. For as long as there have been vaccines, there have been people opposed to them. But the anti-vaccine movement has grown rapidly in recent years, being called a top threat to global health by the World Health Organization even before the COVID-19 pandemic. Misinformation about COVID-19 and the vaccine has been rampant online, despite some major platforms' attempts to curb its spread. 
researchers found that just 12 influencers on social media are responsible for generating two-thirds of anti-vaccination misinformation on Facebook and Twitter alone. Meanwhile, a report from the Center for Countering Digital Hate showed that social media companies have helped the anti-vax networks gain 58 million followers and that these platforms make up to a billion dollars a year in advertising from the anti-vax industry. Today, we're talking to Renee DiResta, a researcher at the Stanford Internet Observatory. Renee investigates the spread of malign narratives across social networks and assists policymakers in understanding and responding to the problem. She has advised Congress, the State Department, other academic, civic, business organizations, and she's studied medical disinformation and the anti-vaccine movement in particular. Renee regularly writes and speaks about the role that tech platforms play in the proliferation of misinformation and conspiracy theories, and has written and been covered in Wired, The New York Times, The Economist, Washington Post, and more. Renee, welcome to the Heart of Healthcare. Thanks for having me. Let's start from the beginning and how you got involved in researching and writing about medical disinformation and the anti-vax social media movement altogether. Yeah. So in 2013, I had my first son and I was in San Francisco and I had to do that thing where when he was about a year old, 2014, I had to put him on all those waiting lists for preschools and things. And I started looking at vaccination rates in the area and I was really kind of horrified actually by, um, by what I found. And California Department of Public Health had this data set where you could actually pull down all of the kindergartens uh, across the entire state of California and look at the rate of medical exemptions and, pers- and personal belief exemptions. I did a lot of data science work. And so I, I just decided I was going to go and look at the data set. And so I did. And there was this really strong trend over time to the increasing use of these personal belief exemptions. Medical exemptions actually stayed the same. And so there was just this pervasive use of people who just decided to opt their children out of vaccines, resulting in some of these schools with 35% uh, MMR uptake rates. And so I started kind of writing about it and just saying, you know, I really feel like this is a kind of a disaster waiting to happen. And then a couple of months later, the Disneyland measles outbreak happened. And I called my representative and I was like, you know, isn't there something that we can be doing about this? You know, isn't there something that we can be doing to kind of shore up our school immunization rates? Why are other people's personal beliefs, you know, allowed to put my child's health at risk? For What is the value judgment uh, inherent in these belief exemptions? What are we saying here? And how do we balance that equity with, you know, the right of children to not get sick in their classrooms? And so he said, you know, we're going to initiate a, a bill and came to be called SB 277. And I said, I really want to be involved. Let me help. And so a group of us started a parent organization. We called it Vaccinate California. And in the course of doing that, my kind of you know job as a volunteer was to follow the social media conversation about the bill. And it was overwhelmingly negative. And I started using kind of network analysis to look at the conversation to try to understand who was participating, what were the dynamics that were taking shape. And it was really very much a very, very, very small handful of accounts that were producing something like 68% of the tweets in the hashtag. So 10 accounts that were producing this massive amount of the content, but they were just always on. And I thought this is really interesting. You know, we have this dynamic where people are trying to change public opinion 
about the value of this bill, about whether or not we should eliminate the personal belief exemptions. And they're doing it using social media activism, but also there's some automation that's happening here. Uh, some of these accounts seem like this is the only thing, you know, they were kind of created for this purpose just to talk about this bill. Let me try to understand the dynamics of how social media is influencing this conversation. And that was kind of how I got into it, actually. It was really as an activist. It was as a as a person who wanted to see this law pass and, and wanted to understand what it was about the anti-vaccine movement online, how it operated, how it networked, what tactics it used, and how they seemed to have kind of a stranglehold on share of voice in these conversations that were really having a very direct impact on the health of our kids. And was the message that they were getting out truthful? Was it a twist of the truth? What were these anti-vax messaging that they used to take down the bill? So the bill passed, so they didn't actually take down the bill, but they (laughs) tried very hard. So we were um, what's called triple referred, which meant that the bill in both the California House and the California Senate was referred to three committees in each. This is somewhat unprecedented. That almost never happens. But because this was such a hot button issue, they wanted to make sure uh, that it was fully debated. So this was also an interesting strategy in that the anti-vaccine activists only had to get one committee to vote against the bill, whereas those of us who were supporting it had to clear a minimum of eight votes. And so the anti-vaccine activists started off with the falsifiable health claims, right? You know, they repeated the myth that vaccines cause autism. They repeated conspiracy mm-hmm. theories about vaccination being toxic, about, you know, toxic ingredients harming children. They assigned a whole litany of theoretical health downsides to vaccination, none of which are borne out by medical science. But this is the sort of roster of repetitive claims that we've seen from the anti-vaccine movement for years. And what was very interesting was that the legislators who heard the bill for the first time in the health committee rejected all of that stuff. And they said, this isn't true. You know, these are these are not accurate claims. They were in, you know, they were well informed enough to realize that they were hearing nonsense. But what the anti-vaccine movement did then really has shaped in a very profound way, not only what happened in California, but what's happened around the country. Mm -hmm. They pivoted to a freedom angle and they said, okay, fine, you know, setting aside all the the health stuff, they began to focus in on libertarian narratives around liberty. And so they began to articulate instead that school vaccination requirements were vast government overreach. They were tyranny. And, you know, the tyrannical state of California was trying to mandate that children be vaccinated. And they and they tried to use terms like this was forced vaccination. No, it wasn't. No one was holding anybody down and vaccinating them. They were just saying you have to be vaccinated in order to go to school. In other words, you could still make the choice not to vaccinate, but that choice would have consequences. And the consequences would be that your child would not be educated in a California school. And this is where, again, we get to these these questions about trade-offs. If your child had a medical reason for not being vaccinated, if there was a medical exemption, that would be perfectly fine. But if you were just voluntarily opting your child out because of your personal beliefs, the consequence of that would be that your child was no longer eligible to attend public school in the state of California. This kind of libertarian argument that they were making, that that was tyranny, really began to attract a much bigger base of people who they could draw on to amplify their messaging. And one of the groups that they reached out to was the Tea Party. And they very much did this on social media. So they would start posting into 
Tea Party hashtags, of which there were many because this was a, you know, this was a movement that was very active in the 2015 timeframe. And so the hashtag uh, 2A, for example, for Second Amendment activists or um, the hashtag TCOT, top conservative on Twitter. These were hashtags that had a rich and robust conversation that existed for, you know, years that had absolutely nothing to do with vaccines. But the anti-vaccine activists who were mostly Southern California liberals and the sort of stereotypical kind of, you know, crunchy mom began to reach out through those hashtags by by tweeting SB 277 bill related content into them to try to galvanize the audiences who participated in those conversations to also participate in fighting against this California bill. So then all of a sudden, there were these people who had nothing to do with the state of California. They weren't even Californians. But on the social media conversation, they began to really weigh in, again, from the anti-vaccine standpoint, but not from the health misinformation standpoint. So really leaning into these narratives around uh, what came to be called, quote, health freedom or medical freedom, health choice. And that was where the conversation really went. So that dynamic really started to emerge in California during this 2015 timeframe as we were kind of fighting about this bill. And it was a remarkable illustration of how social media was used to bring these very, very distinctly different groups together around a particular cause in which groups of accounts could really shape public perception of a conversation simply by being the sort of most dominant, um, you know, most dominant cluster of accounts in the hashtag. Wow. And so you use the term medical disinformation. Can you tell us the difference between disinformation and misinformation? So misinformation is information that is inadvertently wrong. Um, usually the people who are sharing it are, they, they truly believe it. There's a, a real strong belief um, in what they're sharing. And there's an altruistic motivation. They want to inform the community. When we get into disinformation, Oftentimes it's spread by incentivized actors and usually there's an intent to influence, but also there's an intent to deceive. So there's an element of deception that goes into it. It doesn't always refer to falsifiable content. Sometimes it refers to things like the use of fake accounts or bots or some sort of what Facebook now calls coordinated inauthentic behavior uh, to change the dynamics of a conversation to create a perception of popularity where there really isn't one. So it's not so much the claims that are the problem. It's the behavior around the network that is deceptive. So the difference between mis and disinformation is really intent. Uh, and in the disinformation side of things, again, there's this desire, the, the party kind of running the campaign is incentivized and will benefit from it in some way. You know, in 2015, way back in 2015, you wrote a piece in Wired and said, since anti-vax activists lose on the science and are small in number, they have increasingly begun to rely on social media to inflate their presence. They obviously have increased in number since then. I'm curious, then this was really referring to the measles vaccine. The anti-vax movement has grown tremendously. Have their tactics changed and their presence on social media changed as well? Yeah, so it has grown and and it was continuing to grow in part for a period of years from 2015 to 2019, um, because interestingly, kind of platform recommendation engines were nudging people in that direction. So if you engaged with anti-vaccine content on Facebook or on Twitter or on YouTube, if you 
saw some of it and, you know, you watched the entire video or you clicked the like button or you followed one account, they would recommend a ton more. So this was really instrumental in continuing to, um, to help that content reach people, even without anti-vaccine activists having to do, um, particularly active evangelism. They've tried to tamp that down since 2019, in part because there came to be a recognition that that dynamic was also leading to the growth of things like QAnon and that these sort of nudges that maybe seemed harmless because, again, oftentimes the same algorithm that was referring people into anti-vaccine groups was referring people into, you know, cancer support groups or uh, gardening clubs or, you know, reading groups. And so it was just a sort of um, kind of an amoral construct there. It didn't know what it was pushing towards. It just said, hey, you look like you might be the type of person who would like this thing. Now there's some efforts, you know, there's been some efforts, particularly since 2019, to stop doing that, to take certain of these topic areas kind of out of the recommendation algorithms. But what has happened now is that COVID in particular really expanded the audience for vaccine-related content because now all of a sudden, instead of it just being people with kids under the age of five who are paying close attention to this conversation and you know making their decisions, it's everybody it, globally. You know, and as the pandemic emerged, actually anti-vaccine activists were very, very early to start talking about COVID. They were talking about it in the U.S., even while the disease was largely confined to China. And they were speculating about whether this was a bioweapon or you know, if this was going to be used to justify a mass vaccination campaign. So these, these sort of um, core concerns that have been part of the movement for decades were just sort of shifted and repurposed and pointed at COVID. But what started to happen was that now all of a sudden you had ordinary people who had to decide whether to take a vaccine as they became available Prior to the vaccines becoming available, there was debates about the science. Uh, there were debates about masks. Um, there were debates about variety of potential treatments. You know, hydroxychloroquine was the first, and that massive um, increase in attention meant that we started to see a lot of the anti-vaccine accounts, like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who had been you know, anti-vaccine for years and had kind of hovered around about 200,000 followers on Instagram, all of a sudden became a COVID conspiracy theorist account, you know, he's treating stuff about 5G and Bill Gates and COVID. Um, and his follower count increased, it tripled, in fact, to above 750,000 in a very, very, very short period of time. And these were not inauthentic accounts. These were people who were all of a sudden paying attention. And so it moved from being this sort of small group of fringe activists who occasionally used, you know, inauthentic tactics to kind of boost their stuff or took advantage of the inadvertent algorithmic lift that platforms gave them. And all of a sudden, then there came to be real people who found some of their content and messaging persuasive, particularly if they hadn't seen it before. There was an element all of a sudden of novelty where people started sharing content from anti-vaccine activists um, because it was really new to them. And so you would see them sharing, for example, the video Plandemic, which made a whole litany of claims, but many of which were anti-vaccine tropes that had existed for years, just kind of tweaked ever so slightly so that the disease they talked about was COVID. And we would see in the research that we were doing, we would see people sharing these videos and saying like, whoa, you know, kind of like a, this is really big and true, you know. <laughs> the problem is that novelty 
meant and, and that desire to help, you know, to help their communities meant that these kinds of things started to go viral because everybody was looking for a way to protect their families and to understand what was going on. There was a real sense that the government wasn't telling people the truth or that the government didn't know what was going on. That's a whole other topic, maybe, but pervasive in America in particular. Um, but all of a sudden, you had these people who were searching for information on social media. And this was what was the most shareable. And so they were very receptive to it. Yeah. And when Biden said Facebook is killing people, is this what he was referring to? Being the platform where people were spreading this misinformation? Yeah, exactly. So it was the question that really faces us, particularly now, is, you know, Facebook, they, they actually kind of tweaked some of the policies that they put in place in 2019, um, which were actually put in place. There was two very large measles outbreaks in 2019. One was in Brooklyn, New York, and one was in, uh, I think it was American Samoa. And the Samoa outbreak killed about 87 children, I think it was at the, at the end. And while it was happening, the government of Samoa was trying to use social media to encourage people to, you know, to say, you've got to get your children MMR shots. And American vaccine activists were fighting with the government of Samoa on his Facebook page, trying to push out content to undermine the government's own vaccination campaign in the midst of a, you know, of a, of an epidemic in the country that was, you know, killing babies. And so there had begun, so this was where you did start to see Facebook putting policies in place saying, okay, we're not going to accept ads from anti-vaccine organizations. We're not going to refer people into the groups. We're going to start tamping down on health misinformation. If you search for vaccines, we're going to refer you to the World Health Organization and the CDC, not the group or page that has the highest engagement. The challenge when COVID emerged, though, was that the World Health Organization and the CDC were trying to figure out what was going on because the situation was unfolding in real time. It wasn't like the measles where there were, you know, dozens and dozens of informational pages that they had readily available to point to. And so the platforms found themselves in the situation of trying to sort out what to surface, you know, what was the reliable information to surface and deciding that institutional authorities were probably going to be the kind of the best thing out there. And then as the institutional authorities did not perform particularly well in the early days of the pandemic, and there was a lot of confusion a lot of reticence, not much transparency, that was where all of a sudden it provided an even greater opportunity for influencers on these platforms who already had very, very large followings to simply use COVID, you know, and to, to start kind of offering their own opinions on COVID. And these would achieve greater reach than any kind of institutional commentary would. So there were a whole bunch of challenges that, you know, really became obvious as, as we have moved into this environment where we get so much of our information from social media platforms, um, which are really just kind of posts in the conduits, but because of how they curate and because of what gets amplified, they're now put in a position where they have to decide what kinds of content to keep up or take down. And this has become a very politically fraught issue as well. Yeah. And I imagine, so at the base of a lot of the anti-vax claims, it's just conspiracy theories. It's the government is against us. Um, and I imagine that shutting down groups or editing content from these anti-vax influencers really just enhances their fire because they're leaning into this idea that the world is against them or the government is keeping something from them. That's been a 
rhetorical tactic used by groups for centuries. Yeah. <laughs> we tell you what they won't, you know, and, and it's not just influencers on social platforms. I don't know if you've turned on Tucker Carlson and listened to him talking about the vaccines, but, you know, he never comes out and actually says who they is or makes any kind yeah. of valid falsifiable claim. He just asks questions. And the just asking questions tactic really plays well on social media because it's stimulating. You know, people see it and they're intrigued and maybe they click in or they share it along um, because it's, you know, it sounds entertaining. And these rhetorical tactics have worked for years. And it's it's just uh, the stakes are, are life and death for a lot of people, particularly as, you know, now we've reached a point where we've had effective vaccines, but now we're struggling against a variant that doesn't respond quite as well to them. And so even did get vaccinated are very, very frustrated and beginning to really actively participate in the conversation as well. So the White House recently teamed up with TikTok influencers to create pro-vaccine campaigns. I'm curious what you think of this approach. I actually really like it. Here's why I like it. I wish that it wasn't the White House that had to do it, candidly. I wish that the influencers had decided to do it themselves. And the reason I say that is because for a long time in the vaccine conversation, what we've seen is, um, you know, I call it like the asymmetry of passion, right? If you get a vaccine and something bad happens, even if it's a rash or a fever, or, you know, any of the list of side effects that are actually quite routine, what you would see is the people who had the bad experiences would be the people who tweet about it or post about it or, you know, or offer commentary about it. And the people where nothing happened, where nothing negative at all happened, they, they don't wake up and tweet about how they got vaccinated and nothing happened. So it's this, this kind of imbalance. And if you at a conversation and you're seeing that all of the commentary about getting the shot is bad, whether that's MMR or the COVID shot, it creates the perception that this is, you know, a dangerous thing or something to be afraid of or something that's going to make you feel terrible. And so I think at this point, particularly for influencers who, you know, they enjoy a position of trust with their audience. And that's a thing that the government at this point doesn't really, you know, 50% of the country hates the government in any, you know, <laughs> regardless yeah. of which, which side is in power. Um, and then we also have the, the situation where you can say the same thing about the media, you know, people are media conversation is very polarized as well. But people follow influencers, and they feel authentic, they seem to speak for them or be just like them. And so, there's this opportunity that they have to really shape the conversation to help their followers, their fans hear their experience, even if their experience was, I got vaccinated and nothing happened. And I think that's where we need people who have that kind of reach, who have that kind of um, you know, strong, trusted relationship to be countering this asymmetric passion so that it's not just anti-vaccine influencers who are choosing to kind of grow their audience and, and get clout by expressing sensational or conspiratorial viewpoints on it. I agree. You know, I've I've noticed some providers, doctors and nurse practitioners that have kind of come to stardom over the last 18 months by being vocal proponents for safety measures and the vaccine safety, et cetera, and using their platform. This is obviously a, a different audience. They're probably more likely to have me as a follower versus, you know, just the average Joe in Oklahoma. Um, so they might not have the sort of reach, but it does feel like providers are getting more airtime on social media, at least from my feed. I think that's true. So there was a really great effort called, um, the hashtag was, this is our shot. And 
in the very, very early days of vaccination, um, you know, some of the people who got the earliest access were the frontline workers who were, um, you know, who were helping heal people during the pandemic. I think we were all kind of reading these stories of these doctors who were on the front line and, you know, the emergency rooms or the COVID wards and who were talking about just how bad it all was. And, and these were the accounts. You started to see actually Twitter giving um, many of them blue check marks, again, to just sort of verify that this was in fact a doctor, not just some, you know, random account that the doctor was who they said they were too. And so again, that that dynamic of how could we amplify authoritative voices. And the thing that I really liked about that, and one of the reasons why I think it's so important to see more of it, is that these are authoritative voices that are independent of the institutional authorities. And what I mean by that is, even if people feel a loss of confidence in the CDC or the World Health Organization, because of the variety of missteps and you know, kind of politicization of, of uh, some of their activities in the early pandemic, they haven't lost trust in their doctors, their individual kind of personal, you know, hometown doctor that they have gone to to care for them for years. And so there is still this um, this this profession occupies a position of trust. And so elevating their experiences, their point of view, their experiences with the vaccine, too, I think was a really important thing um, for that moment in time again, getting at this idea of here are these people who are speaking from a place of authority. They're not just kind of randos on the internet, but they're also not caught up in the whole CDC world health political thing. They're just doctors and they got vaccinated and here's why they want you to. And that I think was such a great campaign to see. And I hope we continue to see more of it. Yeah. I, I follow a woman on TikTok who. Professor Tracy. Um, I don't know if, if you follow her, but you should. It's Sci Time with Tracy. And she does these great TikToks where she responds to people spewing misinformation. And she says, you know, she kind of just has her voice over it saying, okay, that's right. That's right. No, that's, that's wrong. No. <laughs> um, and she really helps kind of break down the arguments because oftentimes it's just over everyone's head what someone's saying. And so if someone is saying something with confidence, it's easy to believe it. Um, but then you say, okay, well, here's a scientist who has her PhD. She's a professor uh, to have her kind of comment in it and debunk the pieces that are that are wrong and then verify the pieces that are right. I find really helpful and interesting to watch. I think that kind of stuff is fantastic. I have to look her up. There's yeah. TikTok is also such a remarkable such a remarkable medium, right? It's not quite as long as like people who make YouTube videos occasionally. It's like, oh my God, there's like an hour of this that I would have to. <laughs> 15 <laughs> seconds. You can handle it. Yeah. It's got this nice bite-sized kind of um, component to it, which, you know, I, I think there's a, a lot that you can convey and it inspires yeah. you of, uh, of creativity. Um, I've also been fascinated, particularly as teenagers have become eligible for the vaccine to see the teenagers who communicate to other teenagers about their experience with the vaccine. And I mean, and they are irreverent and they are funny. And I mean, there was like a meme going around on TikTok for a while where people would talk about, um, you know, I got the vaccine and then, you know, and it would like the expectation was like, oh, and something bad happened. But then they would like turn around and like jump and like, um, and like talk about how it had like enhanced some body part, you know? <laughs> And it yeah. was like the funniest thing. And I just loved them. And I was like, this is so great because it reminded me, you know, as a person who's like, um, like, I feel like, I feel like I'm like one generation up from TikTok, meaning like, 
I don't make TikToks, but I, <laughs> I appreciate yeah. them. Um, but it's the, uh, I remembered the conversation about HPV, right? You probably, I think we're about the same age. You probably remember also we're like, I wasn't even eligible by the time it came out, but the conversation around HPV and, and that vaccine was like, it was so much geared to the parents. It was geared to like, you know, this is going to make your child promiscuous or here are the weird side effects people are having. The media covered it very differently. You know, anytime there was like, a, there was this one video, um, you may recall, of like a cheerleader who said she could only walk backwards after getting the vaccine. Right? Oh, gosh, I don't remember that. <laughs> it's still up on YouTube. You can still actually um, go see it. It was this crazy, crazy video. Um, but that's the kind of thing where, you know, fast forward. <laughs> Um, probably 20 years since that came out, where the information environment's so different. Now, instead, you have who you have these these teenagers who are doing almost exactly like what I was alluding to. I got vaccinated and nothing happened. And using that and nothing happened, like making that a funny punchline, you know, talking about like you know what it did to your body and like a really like cheeky kind of way. Um, it it I think creates again this this perception of like, we're all in this together. This is normal. You know, this is a good thing that we're, it's like pro-social. We're doing it for our, you know, for our community, but it doesn't do it in a way that reads like the kind of like moralizing PSA that you would get maybe from like, like a government communication. So yeah, I really like that particular aspect of social media. And this is where I feel like influencer culture and creator culture and where creators are now like all of us. Um, really has an opportunity to just change how we engage with this, you know, this idea of um, what should we be doing to protect our community? Yeah, that's such a great point. I think public health education is always just nerdified, right? It's like created by public health people. It's not necessarily in the language of the consumer. Um, And it's actually sometimes worse when, you know, Old, older folks are trying to like speak in, in teenage language to <laughs> convey a message that can really come off as inauthentic. So having teenagers actually build the content themselves is, is brilliant. I was going to say, I just wanted to, um, it's the authenticity thing, right? Like that's really what media has changed. It's just, it, we see so many videos of like, you know, here I am with no makeup on just talking to you in my living room, as opposed to the sort of like hyper produced kind of content of 15 years ago, even. And I think that's where there's so many opportunities to just speak to people where they are to reach them where they are. And that's the kind of activity that we need to continue to engage with. We'll be right back after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm curious to hear about your experience in in your work and if you faced any backlash, any trolls, any threats as you've kind of uncovered this problem of medical disinformation. You know, in 2015, I had the kind of like the doxing experience and the, you know, people posting pictures of my kid into um, hashtags to try to get me harassed. And oh, wow. It was a whole scary thing, actually. Yeah, I wound up, I wrote a couple of medium posts about it as it was happening because it was also at the time, again, so much has changed in social media moderation and how social platforms think about the idea of harm. For a really long time, there was this question of, um, are, you, are, are you impinging on someone's free speech if the speech is harassment? And there was a, you know, kind of a laissez-faire attitude toward that back in the 2015 timeframe. And, you know, and so I definitely was on the receiving end of it um, quite a bit. And you know, now, <laughs> seven years later, I I don't notice it as much anymore. It's just sort of, um, there are people on the internet who don't like me, but I mean, what can I really do about that? I think that there's a, a pretty big spectrum in people's experience of that. I think that the first few times that it happens, it's very jarring. And this was the thing that I was have always been very concerned about. I remember in as as we were coming off of the fight against uh, against the anti vaccine opposition in, in uh, that SB two seventy seven bill. That's where a lot of you know a lot of my trolls were interested in shutting me up because I was advocating for this this legislative thing. And if you shut someone up, then you know you effectively drive them out of the conversation, and then you can kind of even have even more of a of a share of voice. And so that that idea of um, of trolling as a mechanism for silencing speech, I think, has begun to be recognized by platforms as um, as much more of a, a problem. I was really concerned when we started COVID. I felt like the I, I wanted to see more doctors participate, right? And at the same time, I felt like, do they know what's going to happen? Right? Do they know what they're going to have to deal with? And is there some sort of um, are the platforms going to protect the voices who are doing the counter speaking that we need to have happen right now? And there's been some rethinking about um, the phenomenon of brigading, which is when a group of people decides that they're going to try to harass someone off the internet or to make it a professional liability for them to speak. And that's another area where um, you know it, it oftentimes uh, you know they're trying to get you fired or create a professional um, repercussion in the context of going after doctors. They'll try to leave one star reviews on their uh, Facebook page or their Yelp page or oh, wow practice page. And the platforms have really wised up to this now. So since since 2015, also there's been a, a pretty significant shift in, in how they think about it. Um, Yelp announced a couple of weeks ago as 
restaurants began to get actively involved in the vaccine mandate debate by saying, we require vaccination for you to eat in our establishment indoors. And the first few restaurants that kind of took that stance just got railed on social media. And so much so that sometimes the um, the social media activists actually would coordinate with real activists who were in the area who would go and would live stream and would actually try to get real people to show up and scream at the owners and the wait staff. Lovely. Wow. Right, to, to try to make this a liability for the business. And this was happening, this happened several times in, um, in Southern California. And Yelp instituted a series of kind of product changes where it wanted to try to surface these businesses that were requiring these, the sort of proof of vaccines and almost, you know, because for a lot of people in the mainstream, it's actually a selling point, right? You are vaccinated and you want to go into an establishment where you feel like you can be safe, you know, that the people around you are similarly vaccinated, that you've reduced your risk to a level that you're comfortable with to begin eating indoors again. This is pro-business also, you know, it allows businesses that have been only doing takeout to begin to reopen and, you know, and recoup some of their lost revenue over the last year and a half. And so Yelp, in addition to offering the option for businesses to surface this, also, in its blog post about it, noted that they were also taking steps to protect said businesses from comet brigades, which is really interesting because it's both a recognition that they know that this happens, as well as a proactive announcement. We will not tolerate this. We are going to moderate away those comments. We are going to prevent you from, you know, from leaving that bad review if the review is in response to this restaurant's decision to take this pro-public health stance. And so I think that, you know. My experience in 2015 with the anti-vax trolls, it still happens. It does. Um, I think there's a lot more recognition on the part of the platforms that this is the kind of content that they can like, you know, <laughs> I feel like a lot of them would have been gray boxed under Twitter's new like low quality account thing. You'd have to kind of like click in to read the hate instead of it actually just like showing up in your notifications every 20 seconds. Yeah. Um, so things are a little bit different, but there's still, you know, still a ways to go. It seems like the social media companies have shifted. This is my outsider perspective. I don't study this. You do. So tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the social media companies have gone from, we're a neutral platform to, okay, we actually do need to take a side here. Well, I think it's that it's, it's not so much even take a side. It's just put some guardrails on, <laughs> you know, again, this question of where is the line between speech and harassment the the line has never been all speech that would be tolerated under the First Amendment is okay on the platforms. That's never really been anybody's experience on the internet. Despite the political conversation around it today, there has always been terms of service that actually govern the you know what content platforms choose to host and carry. And even on websites like Infowars, you know there <laughs> there were notes about like we're not obligated to carry your comments, right? You know if you uh, if you say terrible things, we have the right to take them down. You know, so this is not a, a novel idea that creating an environment that keeps your users there, because these are companies that are running a business. Let's not forget, right? Leaving your customers at the mercy of screaming hordes of trolls is not necessarily good business. And so, changing that environment and saying, like, okay, we're going to have different set of guidelines around speech than just is this protected First Amendment speech is, I think, 
a perfectly reasonable framework uh, for the platforms to engage in. And we've seen now a rise of a whole host of, you know, they're called oftentimes like alt platforms, which have chosen to institute a different threshold for certain types of speech or a different degree of, of tolerance. But interestingly, even those moderation kind of comes for them eventually, you know, <laughs> you know, we need to move past the kind of absolutist notions and just think about like what creates a healthy community. And that's where I think the platforms um, are beginning to come from now. So tell us about your work at the Stanford Internet Observatory, what you're working on. So Stanford Internet Observatory is a center within the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford. We have four main areas of focus. The first is information interference, and that's the kind of mis- and disinformation stuff that we've talked about. Um, oftentimes that is focused on elections uh, for the last eight months through a joint effort called the Virality Project. We've worked with a number of partner organizations to focus on how health-related misinformation moves. We're much more interested not in you know, this is content that is wrong on the internet. We're interested in the dynamics of how communities receive information and how it spreads. So a little bit more about, you know, a little more dynamics focused stuff. And in the course of that, we also do look for, you know, kind of um, coordinated and authentic behavior, things like Russian and Chinese and Middle Eastern information operations, targeting outside, you know, targeting outside of their borders, not only the U.S., we we look pretty globally, um, but we do look at that kind of disinformation campaign dynamic. Um, and the other stuff that we work on is emerging technology. You know, when new technology comes into the picture, how does it change the world? How does it change how we communicate? You know, new forms of AI, what they do to our way of of interacting with each other. Um, we do a lot of work on trust and safety, so things like harassment or suicide and self harm or child safety dynamics, kind of come into the, you know, come into the research picture as well. Um, how do we think about balancing, again, the kind of intersection of emerging tech and trust and safety right now is end-to-end uh, -end encryption. So how do we think about what end-to-end -end encryption does to the world? And then we do a lot of policy recommendations around these three areas. Uh, we do engage both with platforms and with governments, uh, U.S., you know, various entities from the U.S. government around what appropriate tech policy should be um, given certain types of repetitive, repetitive harms. So that's the general gist. Awesome. Yeah. So if people want to get involved, especially listeners here who tend to be from a healthcare background, are there ways that people can get involved in your work around medical disinformation? Absolutely. The Virality Project really focused a lot on incorporating in um, outside organizations that were in public health. So the California Department of Public Health, for example, and a few other state-level health organizations, the doctors who led the effort behind this star shot, you know, we were in touch with them trying to learn a little bit more about how they were operating and the dynamics, you know, could we provide visibility into communities that were being targeted to help them craft their event, you know, their interventions more, uh, more precisely. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, we get, we get outreach from folks at medical schools, uh, social scientists. We, we love working collaboratively. We believe that that's the only way to really make material headway on a lot of these problems. Um, and so that has uh, been a big focus of our mission. Awesome. Well, for all of our listeners today, if you um, are interested in learning more about the Stanford Internet Observatory, you can Google them online. I also highly recommend following Renee on Twitter. Her handle is 
at no upside, which that'll be for another podcast explaining what that means. (laughs) Um, But she is always providing really awesome content. Um, She's constantly contributing to various outlets on various topics that I think you'd find really interesting. So follow her there. And Renee, thank you so much for your time today. We hope your move to the East Coast goes smoothly. Um, And thank you again. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for listening to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. If you liked today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare with Halle Teco is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Holly Teco and Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seely and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seely. Our music is by Utah. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.